Blog Talk Radio. Yeah. Mic check, mic check. One, two, one, two, one, two, for you. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right up. It's that biblical, biblical theology, theology study of the person of God attributes. God's word is like a breeze in the tropics. And Jesus got the keys to the cockpit. He's the king, the priest, and the prophet. So please watch as we proceed with the topic. Uh, yeah. And that's biblical theology. That phrase alone, they give some people allergies. Uh, they say it's not practical enough. Uh-huh. Just give me Jesus, that will be enough. That seems plausible and logical. Nobody wants to be all cold and theological. But being a theologian is not optional. Because when you talk about Christ, you're saying something doctrinal. Either it accurately portrays his majesty, or it's a travesty, or worse, blasphemy. You can do a global search. This mark is crucial to the health of a local church. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We gotta see the importance of biblical theology. What do I mean by biblical theology? The whole theme of the scripture and God's the key. It's following the Bible storyline and the ultimate goal is seeing God's glory shine. What he starts, he finishes with dedication. A work of art from Genesis to Revelation. From God's creation to man's fall to redemption to consummation. His designs and structure each time will fluster. What mind can instruct the divine conductor? His worthiness sits enthroned in the heavens sturdy and fixed. Romans 11.36 Biblical theology encompasses who God is, what he promises, and accomplishes. So clever we behold his endeavors unfold. The greatest story ever told. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Yeah. The Lord has not decided to keep us guessing. Thank you, Lord. He gave us the word providing us correction yeah. and the spirit for guidance and direction. Biblical theology is like protection from ourselves and our improper reflections so we can follow the Bible, not just our reflections. Otherwise, we will chop it into sections and not make the connections like the doctrine of election. And Satan is waiting to slice us in the mincemeat if our faith is a mile wide and an inch deep. Theology is like the root of a tree, which determines how rich the fruit's gonna be. And by God's grace, he'll breathe on us with his breath, lead us in his steps, show us his eagerness to bless. And we'll experience true peace within our depth, because we'll know the meaning of Jesus and his death. The Christian life is a difficult odyssey. The faithful are a statistical anomaly. The enemy wants to trick us hypnotically. That's why we need that biblical theology. Lord God, deliver us from apostasy. The human heart is given to idolatry. The situation is critical. We got to see the importance of biblical theology. Biblical theology, folks, that is what we try to focus on here is Theology Matters, and want to thank everybody for joining us again this week during this Christmas season as uh, we're getting ready for all kind of good things coming up this month, and I uh, really appreciate you guys 
taking the time to listen to our show. We actually uh, have a very, very uh, exciting show today, one that I'm, I'm actually uh, really looking forward to uh, as we look at mental health in the Bible. Now, you know, this show is uh, pretty much primarily dealing with Christian theology and apologetics. And for uh, those who are not familiar with apologetics, it doesn't mean that we're going around apologizing for being Christians. No, what apologetics means uh, is to give a defense of the Christian faith. It comes from the Greek word apologia. You see it in 1 Peter 3.15, be ready always to give an apologia or give a defense. Uh, and that is what we intend to do, and that's what we've done for over three years here on Theology Matters. But we want to do the whole man, so to speak. We want to uh, not only deal with the intellect and with the heart issues, um, but we also need to deal with things like mental health. You know, we live in a fallen world, and because we live in a fallen world, uh, sin has touched us, every part of us, our mind, our will, our emotions, our, our bodies, everything is affected radically by sin. And so, you know, we need to learn to uh, kind of know how to how to to talk about this kind of a, a touchy topic. And uh, it's one that, well, some Christians uh, will have severe disagreements on. And we'll get into... We'll get into that uh, as we move towards that part of our show. Uh, we're going to bring in our guest, Mike Kozlinski, at about 6.30. Um, real quickly, just to get a few things out of the way here, if you've not liked us on Facebook, be sure to go to Theology Matters with the Palouse and uh, like our page. We put our podcasts up. You'll find our stuff there from three, you know, three-plus years ago. Uh, we constantly um, are uploading our shows. We've done all kind of different topics, from shows on Halloween to uh, Doctrine of the Trinity with people like Rob Bowman. Uh, we've had Dr. Stephen Meyer on, Dr. Ken Samples, Jay Warner Wallace, uh, Norm Geisler, Paul Copan. Really been blessed to, to get a lot of top name guys uh, on this show, and we've covered a lot of different areas. So be sure to like us on Theology Matters with Clues on Facebook to get our updates uh, and uh, etc. Um, just quickly, I uh, want to uh, just uh, be praying for the people in uh, California with this uh, terrible attack that has just happened. Uh, hearts and prayers definitely are going out to the people there. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just another reminder. It seems like every time you turn on the TV, some something tragic has happened, something evil has happened, and, you know... Um, as a Christian, you know, we're not to be scared, we're not to have fear, we're to cling to the cross, we're to seek the things above, we're to meditate on Christ. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you live in a world where, you know, these people yesterday going to work, I guarantee you didn't, <clears throat> didn't think for a minute that uh, they'd be gunned down by some Muslim extremists. And so... Um, Pray for those people, pray for our country, pray for our president, uh, and just pray for wisdom and guidance exactly how we with some of these issues and how to prevent some of these issues uh, in the in the future. So that being said, just keep them in prayer. 
Um, if you would like to, if you have any apologetic events going on in your area, theology, apologetic conferences, whatever, uh, you can email me at uh, sola.scripture at yahoo.com. That's sola.scripture at yahoo.com. <clears throat> and we can put these events on our Facebook page. We let people know uh, exactly what events are in their area, what uh, what things are going on. <clears throat> uh, excuse me. If you guys um, are in an area where you have, uh, you know, Ratio Christie events or Reasonable Faith events, etc., let us know, and we'll we'll be more than happy to uh, put those on our on our Facebook page and let people know, because you know ultimately we we want to get people uh, connected with good sound theology and apologetics, and so you know in a way we can help to to make that happen. Uh, let us know. So, kind of shifting gears here for the uh, next 15, 20 minutes, uh, I wanted to bring a friend on. And as you guys know, normally the first 30 minutes of the show, we'll we'll do an interview with someone, uh, and they'll tell us a little bit how good sound theology and apologetics has helped to strengthen their, their walk with Christ and help them in their uh, walk with the Lord. And so... Today, I've got a good friend. His name is Josh Burdett, and he's got quite an interesting testimony. <clears throat> and I wanted to bring him on and uh, just talk a little bit with him and let him kind of tell you a little bit about his story and how God uh, is working in his life. So, Josh, are you there? I am. I'm here. All right. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? Doing good, doing great. Let's, uh, I guess, let's start kind of um, at the beginning. Where, where were you born? What, uh, what city? What state? What was it like growing up? Kind of the religious background or or lack of religious background? Yeah. Um, so I was born in Wilmington, North Carolina, and. Um, we uh we moved to uh just north of Charlotte uh when I was 1 year old so um i was raised in uh a, a christian household you know both of my parents uh my dad was a, a deacon in the church um we uh, i i cannot remember a time in my life uh when uh, when i was not in church growing up um it was it was just part of life uh, it's all i ever knew um so yeah, uh raised in the church um up until I was uh let's see really un- until I was was out of the house, you know, it was a it was a every Sunday thing, you know. We we went to we went to church, we you know, we had youth group. Um I was really active in my youth group um growing up and uh uh but that kind of uh Changed when well, I when I well, let me ask you, Joshua, just real quick. I'm just just curious. What uh, what was the uh, denomination you were in? It, it was Presbyterian. Um, we we grew up Presbyterian, and then and then we actually, to be honest, we switched and started going to a Methodist church about the time I was let's see, about 13 or 14. We switched and started going to a Methodist church. Um, and then I went to that uh, Methodist church up until I was like 18. 
Okay, wonderful. Okay, um, so you grow up, you're you're in the church, you're you're there every week, uh, and then you turn eighteen, and then. Well, I, I turn eighteen and I, I moved out. Um, got out of got out of the house, and when that happened, um, I I basically quit going to church. Um, I I went sporadically, I guess. Um, but but not not like it was, you know, when I lived at home. Uh, just went whenever I felt like it, I guess, and or when my parents called and 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 asked me why I wasn't in church. You know, I would make an appearance just to appease them, I guess you'd say. And uh, just started basically doing everything that I wanted to do. You know, wanted wanted it to be all about me. Uh, started uh, becoming a selfish person. Yeah. Yeah, that's that definitely happens uh, to us. <laughs> it's kind of part of our part of our nature, isn't it? Right. So it certainly. What, what were you about uh, early twenties, mid twenties, and then and then and then kind of tell us walk well, us a little bit through that. <clears throat> well, um, actually, even before that, when I moved out and and had I got a, had a roommate, we had a place. Um, like I said, started doing everything I wanted to do. Um, that included a lot of partying um, and starting to experiment with uh, drugs uh, and alcohol. Um, didn't really have much of a stomach for alcohol, so I chose drugs. Um, I I started uh, experimenting, and then uh, you know when you, when you start playing with drugs, it eventually leads to. Uh, Abuse and which it did for me um, started abusing drugs and um, basically before I knew it I was addicted to drugs um, and uh, wasn't just you know what what most people would consider you know not hard drugs like marijuana this was you know hard drugs like you know uh, pretty much if you can name it I've done it or was doing it so. Um, yeah, became addicted wow. pretty quick. Now, did your did your immediate family know? Did your did your family or, or your brothers they notice a change or notice something different? Well, yeah, they did. I I thought that I was pretty good at hiding it, um, which obviously I wasn't because they they knew they knew what was going on. I don't know if they necessarily knew to what extent because I had moved at that time. Um, I had met a girl. And moved to Florida um, and moved down there for a couple years. And it was really down there, when I moved down there, was when um, the drug use kind of, I guess, skyrocketed, you would say. It really went, like, full force. And I was just, uh, I was a mess, (laughs) basically. Wow. So you're addicted, uh, I guess, full-time to drugs at this time. What was, uh, what was your, your spiritual life like? Were you even thinking about the Bible or did you, uh, I don't know, attend church on holidays or anything like that? Or was it just completely um, not even on the radar, so to speak? It would have to be the latter. Um, My spiritual life at that point was basically non-existent. I mean, obviously, there was. There's never been a time in my life I, d- I didn't believe in God. But there's a huge difference between someone, you know, believing that there's a God and then actually having a personal relationship with God. So at at that point, uh, yeah, it was non-existent. I was I was all about me and and what I 
what I could do for me and and how I could how I could get me high. That was that was what I was all about at that point in my life. Wow. Appreciate your honesty. You know, I appreciate you being willing to share uh, a lot of this. This is this is personal stuff, and it's it's hard stuff. But um, you know, the the good thing is, you know, God wins, so to speak. Right? He he redeems us. He saves us. What was the turning point? Uh, to kind of walk us through what happened uh, that changed you uh, as you were well, walking down this life. Um well uh we before we get to that I would have to say um ended up uh this this fits in um ended up actually going to prison um uh drug related problems uh ended up going to prison uh when I was 25 um got out after uh almost 4 years got out and uh while I was in the first time I Kind of thought about God, you know, and like, hey, you know, and, and my parents were telling me, you know, hey, you know, this, you know, God is trying to get your attention, you know, He's trying to use this, you know, to 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 get to you, and I, you know, I I considered it, and uh, but when I got out, just wasn't in a spot where I was ready. Honestly, I wasn't ready to stop using drugs yet. I really wasn't, and so um, stayed out for four years. Um, and before I went back a second time, uh, again, drug-related stuff uh, took me back to prison the second time. But it was the second time that really uh, is when I really started thinking about, hey, you know, what what is going on here? What, <clears throat> excuse me, what, you know, what am I doing with my life? Where where am I going to be, you know? And so God was definitely... Uh, at that point, reaching out and drawing me uh, closer to Him. It was it wasn't you know all at once. It was it was gradual. But uh, I got you know into into chapel services. Um, anytime they would have a religious group come in, I would I would go in and have the service and I started reading my Bible and and memorizing Scripture and uh, you know praying and just you know. Uh, Telling God, you know, hey, I, I get it. You know, I understand. This, you don't want me doing this. You're trying to get my attention, and uh, you've got it now. So, you know, what what would you have me do? Um, but even then, to be honest, Devin, even then, I can't tell you that I truly grasped who God was at that time. I, I was, I guess, developing a relationship, but I didn't truly grasp who he was at that point. Um Actually, wasn't until um, I got out the second time, and um, when uh, you and I we were discussing some theology stuff, uh, we were going over some uh, books of the Bi- or chapters in the Bible, um, Romans nine, Ephesians one, John seventeen, um, John six forty four. Uh, we were going over those things and uh, talking about some uh, theology that I truly grasped who. God was and how just holy and how magnificent and wonderful he is and how I am basically the opposite of that. Um, I'm not. I'm truly not holy, not magnificent. And um, it was that night that I fell on my knees and prayed and and just uh, I, I truly grasped my need for a Savior, how desperately I needed him. And it was that night that I, I, I believe I got saved. Wow. 
Wow. And that, you know, folks, it really is just the power of, of the, of the word of God. I remember, I remember this. I mean, it was just really wasn't that long ago, uh, sitting on, sitting on the couch with you and just reading some passages of the Bible. And, uh, it was like all of a sudden, uh, you know, like a, a person that, that wakes up in the morning and, uh, you know, they can't really see until they put their glasses on and then they see and, you know, boom, everything is clear. And uh, I remember that because I, I could tell by the look on your face, you know, you were you were getting it, you know. Uh, so that's, that is really cool. Uh, talk, talk for a minute. How important is it that Christians are involved doing some prison ministry? I mean, it sounds like it, it really was uh, – you know, something God was using while you were in the prison to draw you uh, to him. So, you know, if you, could, if you could say something to our listeners about the importance and maybe a little encouragement for those who maybe feel that God is, is calling them to that ministry, what kind of effect did okay. it have on you? Yeah, so um, it was the highlight of my day or my week, depending on some, some you know, the schedule was, was varied. Um, we didn't always have a service every day, but uh, we, had a, we had a good many different uh, churches and different volunteers from the local area that would come in and do it. And it was, for me, it was the highlight of my day, you know, to go in there and listen, um, you know, that first of all, that these folks would take time out of their schedule um, for whatever you know may be going on in their life to come in and and spend time with me, but uh, it, you know I desperately at that point was um, was just thirsting for knowledge of God and was just wanting to hear more about Him and and you know and just to learn. And so um, if if this is you and you are uh, either involved in prison ministries or considering being involved in prison ministries, I would say please. Um, Please go ahead and, and at least give it a try, um, because um, for the for the ones that are serious about it, there are some in there that you know they just they go just uh, just for the food sometimes. But um, for the ones that are truly serious about it and they they're trying to learn about God and they're wanting to change their lives, it is it is um, it is a wonderful thing to have volunteers come in to a correctional facility to to teach you about God. Wow, that's great. So, okay, so kind of at this point now, you've encountered the risen Christ. You've given your life to him. Walk us through a little bit what happens after that as far as the church, um, some of the other things you're involved in. Okay, um, yeah, so I go to Park Baptist, as you know, um, and have uh, have been in um, – had conversations with the pastor there, and have uh, he's agreed to baptize me, which, as you know, will be happening this coming Sunday. Um, going to be baptized and also uh, becoming a member of Park Baptist. Um, just the the church family that I have there has um, been nothing but welcoming to me, and just uh, I I could not feel more at home when I'm there, and I'm just truly grateful for that. And like I've told you in the past, I truly believe that God put you in my life for these reasons, because had I, had I not met you, then I doubt very seriously I would have ever been to Park Baptist, and I just doubt very seriously that I would be where I am right now spiritually. Um, I I just doubt it, uh, highly doubt it, and so I'm truly grateful 
for the blessings that God has given me in you, in Park Baptist, and just uh, in this second, well, actually, second, second chance, you know, at, at life. And, um, you know, he's he's blessed me with um, with this job that I have now working for a Christian organization. And um, it's just wonderful, just really wonderful. Also with the uh, apologetics with Ratio Christi, um, attending those classes and I've just been uh, devouring these apologetics books that I've got. And um, uh, I just can't seem to learn enough, you know. <laughs> Yeah, and it's I tell you it's been a, a joy to watch you. You know, and I, you know I'll say this, and I know you're 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 just being kind in that, uh, but you know, trust me, if God if God wants to save you and uh, grow you, He's going to do it. You know, He'll use instruments, He'll use people to do it, and uh, you know I'm blessed to be able to, um, you know, have have been able to talk with you and and that so. Um, you know, I don't want to take any credit at all for that, but it really is amazing to see how God uh, has, is working in your life and the things He's doing, and I think the things that He's going to do. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for what the future holds, and I, you know, I, I really think, um, you know, God's going to use you in amazing ways. I really, really think that, you know. Um, and I know we've talked a little bit about possibly even going on and and doing some formal training in apologetics. Are you, that's something you're still considering or? I am. I am. I'm uh, still considering it. There's uh, several things I've, I've told you, you know, that I want to go back to school, regardless of what happens. I, I want to go back to school for something. Um, and, uh, and apologetics is something that um, fascinates me. So, um, yes, I'm still planning on uh, at least, uh, trying it out at first, you know, seeing is is this, you know, trying it out and, and you know, taking some classes, praying about it and seeing is this God where you really want me. So um, we'll see where he leads. Yeah, you know, the, the good thing is, folks, Josh has a, you know, a testimony that's, that's unlike mine, for example. And so he's going to be able to reach a lot of people I can't reach. Uh, it's just the way it is, you know. So it's amazing to see how, you know, God can take different people, different walks of life, put them together, uh, and ultimately we're united in the cross. We're united in Christ. You know, the cross is the great equalizer. Um, I've been teaching an apologetics class every Monday up at uh, Kershaw Prison in South Carolina. And uh, this this last Monday... Um, after the class, and, and it's 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 just been going phenomenal up there. Uh, probably 50% are non-believers. A lot of um, there's some Muslims, there's some uh, Wiccans, uh, non-believers, you know, etc. Uh, and they love to ask questions. They love to try and stump you. Uh, it's a great time, and it's a, it's a great group of guys. But after after a lesson, um, they had a church come in and uh, feed them, and after they fed him. There was a kind of a little brief message, uh, uh, but the choir was up there. The choir is made of inmates and probably sitting there with 150 to 200 men and just worshiping the Lord. And I'll tell you, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the most amazing experiences I've ever had because you're, you're, you're with people, you're with guys that, uh, you know, they may, they may never get out. Some of them are going to be in there, could be in there for life. Some have got, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and yet they still worship the Lord with all that they have. 
because it's not about a promise of blessing or riches in this life, and they get that. And, you know, ultimately, when we stand before God, all of us, everything is laid bare and naked and open before him. A lot of people have been caught, others haven't. But when we stand before the great judge of the universe, it doesn't matter whether or not uh, a person in this life finds you guilty. We've all sinned against God, and therefore we will all stand uh, in the tribunal, so to speak, of God. And it's only, only through the work of Christ on the cross, believing in him, trusting in him, confessing him as Lord and Master, is our only hope. You know, so... Um, I don't know, I, just, I see a lot of parallels uh, with those who are in prison and kind of the afterlife and how we all have to stand before Christ and give an account. So, Josh, mm-hmm. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, any last words? If, if, you, if there's somebody listening today maybe that's struggling with drugs or alcohol, <clears throat> have, a, have an old Christian background, what, what, are, what would be some of the things you may say? Just, uh, just that. Don't be ashamed of what 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 has happened in your past. Things you have done. Um, you know, just uh, because I was, you know, things that I had done. Just, um, you know, give it to him. You know, if if you truly want to change your life and you're truly ready to stop all that, um, I'm telling you, God can deliver you. He can redeem you uh, from all of that. You know, where there's no shame and there's freedom. So um, that would be my words to them. One, one more, one more thing. I'm just just curious about this, and yeah. this is not to rag on any of the churches you you grew up in, and I don't I don't want you to say their names or anything. But growing yeah. up in the church your whole life, did you ever hear about apologetics? Was it taught? Was it taught in Sunday school? Was it taught <laughs> in the pulpit? I mean, did did you get did you no. get any apologetics growing up? I'm just just curious. No, absolutely not. Um, to be honest with you, do you know where I heard the term apologetics? It was in prison. Um, one of the guys who uh, came in on Sunday, he he did the worship service every Sunday morning. Um, he is the one who uh, talked about apologetics uh, the the very first time I'd heard the term. So, uh, yeah, I think the church has done a horrible job of of uh, equipping Christians to defend their faith. So you you had not you had not heard of apologetics when you were um, growing up, then it just wasn't something that you guys had had got a lot of uh, as far as from the church. Never even heard the term. Nope. Okay. Yeah, and that's you know I think that's just one thing. Um, it's not to beat up on churches, folks, uh, but it is one of these things that I think we need to draw you know some attention to because we want the local church. Uh, to be seeing the need for apologetics, the need to uh, get in, get your hands dirty, think about some of these uh, extremely important issues, and uh, you know that's it's, it's got to be done. Seventy-five percent uh, of Christians walk away from the faith uh, first year of of college. Um, those those are uh, the Christians that are brought up in a Christian home, and so. Um, you know, it's an it's an issue that that needs to be dealt with by the church, and uh, I'm thankful for groups like Ratio Christie and Cross Examined and and that that uh, come on and are able to, um, you know, help equip the church. 
So, Josh, appreciate, appreciate you coming on, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing what the Lord does in your life, my friend. All right, man. Thanks for having me. All right. God bless. All right, All right folks. So what we'll, we'll do is go ahead and take a quick break, and uh, when we come back, we will have our friend, uh, our guest, Mike Kozlinski on. We'll talk a little bit about the Bible and mental health, so stay with us. Church discipline is like the other part of church membership. Church discipline in the widest sense is just any teaching of what it means by the church uh, to be a Christian. The church disciplines, the church teaches. But what we normally mean in English when we say that these days is we mean excommunication. We mean cutting somebody off. We mean excluding them from membership, telling them formally that they should not come to the Lord's table. The, the main way we practice church discipline is through positive teaching. Uh, teaching one another what God's Word says. Teaching one another how we are to live. Uh, that certainly, that, that formative, positive discipline uh, has got to be uh, the most loving thing that we can do for one another. And yet, because we love one another, just as, as parents love their children, or, or good friends love one another, from time to time we will, we will correct one another. Uh, we will lovingly look out um, for the other's interests when they may not see the danger they're in, and, and call them to repentance, call them to renewed fellowship with the Lord. The punishment is meant for correction. It's meant to lead them to change. Uh, it's not vengeance. It's not vengeance is, is God's. It's not ours. We are all fellow sinners. But Christians are those who are repenting from our sins, and church discipline is there for the people who claim to be repenting of their sins but don't. Corrective discipline isn't just the the final stage of, of someone being excluded from the church, but even corrective discipline should be regularly going on in personal relationships where we lovingly and gently rebuke each other. And so we come to see that discipline really is this whole project of helping build each other up in the faith, both positively by encouragement and teaching and by, by correcting sin that we see. The discipline of a church, both formative and corrective, aims to build up, lovingly build up Christians. And, and sometimes... That means threatening them with an F, to use the classroom metaphor. Look, if, if, if your profession isn't matching your life, you, you get an F. Now, we don't want to give you an F. We want you to get an A, and we're going to try to help you get an A. But sometimes you need to be excluded to realize, no, Christ calls you to something different, a different kind of life. That's a loving thing to do. That takes courage, and that kind of courage is only motivated by real love for God and love for the other person. If we want to just avoid conflict... Uh, if we don't want people looking at our own lives too closely, we'll avoid church discipline. But if we want to honor the Lord, if we want to obey His Word, we'll somehow figure out, even in this society, how we can practice church discipline. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. If you had one minute to be able to unpack for the audience, what about those who've never heard about Jesus Christ? How does intelligent design differ from a theological doctrine of creation? How do you answer that? Well, creation is always about the source of being, where does everything come from? And uh, one, one way you might, might illustrate that is a joke that was making the rounds on the internet some years back where scientists come to God and they say, we can do everything you can do. God says, oh, that's interesting, show me. And then they say, well, we can, uh, we can create humans from scratch. We can take some dust and, and as they're about to continue, God says, well, wait a second, get your own dust. Okay, now that's what creation is. It's giving being to existence. Uh, 
Carpenters take pre-existing materials. They're designers, and design is about taking pre-existing materials and finding patterns there which point you to intelligence. So uh, another way I illustrate this is you imagine a pan balance, and you've got a veil that includes one side, and you've got one pound weight on this side, which is up. How much weight is on this other side? Well, you know, you know it's more than one. It could be two pounds, it could be five pounds, it could be a million pounds. And that's how it is with intelligent design. We know that there's an intelligence behind the things that we see in nature, and things in biology and cosmology. But getting to an infinite, personal, transcendent, creator God of Christianity is not something the logic of intelligent design can take us to. But it's friendly to Christian theism in a way that uh, atheism, uh, the, the Dar Darwinian evolution, and ev uh, materialistic evolutionary theories are not. So it gives you a lot. It takes you some way. You know, it's closer to the kingdom. But if you want the gospel, you're going to have to go to the gospel. For those of you that want to learn more, this book, The Design Revolution, was very helpful to me, amongst many of his other books. Welcome back to Theology Matters with Blues. I'm your host, uh, Devin Palou. And sorry about that little longer commercial break. My computer decided to uh, do a total reboot uh, as I was in the middle of a uh, conversation there. So I apologize about that. But uh, let's go forward on with our show. Um, we have Mike Kozlinski on the line with us. Mike is a graduate from UNC Asheville with a bachelor's degree in psychology. He has a master's degree in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary, the best apologetics school on the planet, uh, and has graduate-level education in Christian counseling. He's been trained in discipleship, counseling through HELPS mission, and has worked in the human services field such as mental health, social services, ministry, etc., uh, for about 15 years. In March 2012, Mike founded the First Cause Discipleship Ministries, which is a counseling, teaching, and training ministry focused on making disciples. He provides discipleship counseling through partnerships with Life Fellowship Church in Hunterville, North Carolina, and with Cornerstone Fellowship Church in Forest City, North Carolina. Mike and his godly wife, Missy, have five children. So just for those who are not aware, uh, Life Fellowship Church, we play a lot of Bobby Conway one-minute apologist videos because they're just, they're excellent. And uh, we play those a lot during our commercial breaks. Bobby Conway is the pastor there at Life Fellowship Church. So a little interesting side note there. Mike, are you there? I am. All right. Good to have you with us, sir. Sorry I had to keep you on the line a little longer than normal there. Like I say, my computer decided to do a uh, complete reboot and update uh, in the middle of the show. So, Not a problem. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So did I leave anything out there of the of your uh, kind of your opening, or is there anything you want to add? Um, I mean, nothing as far as my bio. That was, um, that was fine. And, uh, yes, I'm very uh, thankful. Uh, to be uh, partnering with Life Fellowship Church and, and uh, the lead pastor, Bobby Conway. Um, having a, a pastor who is also an apologist um, is a great blessing because those uh, elements of theology, philosophy, and the reasons for the faith um, are inevitably 
a major part of not only the preaching on Sunday mornings, but an emphasis on the, the discipleship in the church. And so it's a great uh, partnership for me, and I also am a member of the church, and, and I'm very thankful for, for Bobby and his leadership in ministry. Amen. You know, it's so rare to find a pastor uh, who, to be honest, really even cares about apologetics let alone to find a pastor who, who went and trained uh, in apologetics as well as uh, theology and that. So you guys at Life Fellowship Church are definitely blessed to uh, to have Pastor Bobby Conway. So uh, talk Amen. to us a little bit, uh, Mike, uh, for those who may not be familiar with you or haven't listened to your, your stuff on our show before. Give us a little background. How did you um, kind of, when you grew up, uh, Christian home, non-Christian home. Uh, how did you get interested in Christianity and apologetics, and and uh, basically the issue, I guess, of uh, what would it be, psychology? Uh, yeah, that's a that itself is a long story. Um, the short version um, is that I was raised in a in a church-going home. Uh, my parents were uh, I would regard as cultural believers at the time, or cultural Christians at the time which means that church um, was a part of what we did. They had, so I would say they have the genuine, uh, at the time, belief in God, um, but the kind of God they believed in at the time was uh, um, definitely not the biblical conception. Um, and so we uh, grew up um, in the Northeast, and so it was actually kind of humorous looking back on it now and you know knowing more about theology, but I was actually uh, baptized uh, Roman Catholic at the age of three or so, uh, well, and then we attended a Roman Catholic church, but also attended a private Lutheran school. And so, um, you know, that's just kind of indicative that they had a cultural connection with with high church, liturgical kinds of churches. Um, and so we would go to uh, Roman Catholic church when we moved to Connecticut. Um, we spent some time in Florida, and uh, we lived in Connecticut for a while, and um, went to a, a Episcopal church there. And then we moved to Charlotte, went to an Anglican church. Um, and so the you know, that's, that's kind of the, the church upbringing I had um, uh, in terms of, you know, belief and, 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 you know, religious activities consist of Sunday morning, uh, you know, worship services, and then we would uh, kind of prayer, pray the rote prayers before meals, uh, the dinner meal, and then um, before bed. Um, but beyond that, I think my parents had beliefs that they held really strongly, in the, you know, but it was, again, not biblical-based belief, and it was uh, something they didn't talk a lot about. And so um, there wasn't a lot of any kind of religious instruction. And so I just kind of grew up as a cultural Christian and was pretty content with it. Um, you know, Sunday morning was a great time to spend uh, time at church while preparing for, for football. So uh, I was, because of the liturgy, you could, I would know, you know, how far we were in the service and, and knew when we are getting close to the end. And when we took communion, I knew we were down the last 10 or 15 minutes so I could get home and eat lunch and, and turn on um, football game. So that was my, that's the extent of my religiosity through my upbringing. Um, and it really wasn't until I was an undergrad at UNC Asheville um, that I, I encountered what I'll consider like, you know, people that were outspoken and, and, and vocal about their evangelical faith, um, their Christian faith. And, and so uh, a lot of people started talking to me about Jesus and the Bible. And at first I was like, well, you know, I, I'm a, you know, I'm a Christian, and, and they would kind of press me on it, and I really didn't have any 
reason um, to say I was a Christian other than I just quoted, you know, that I believed in Jesus, and therefore that should be enough because I, you know, had heard of Jesus on Sunday mornings, um, but not that I was ever really paying that much attention. Um, so, can I, can I ask you a question, Mike, with that sure. real quick? Uh, when you're yeah. at the college and you're having the, the Christians ask these questions, was this, uh, were you going to, like, uh, some of the Christian ministry uh like the little meetings that they do sometimes through the week, or was it just random Christians that you you'd run into or knew through class? Well, it was a little bit of both. What um, the people did is that they would, uh, you know, just engage in conversation in the midst of, you know, normal life. So we'd be eating at the cafeteria or playing basketball at the gym, and, and they would, you know, inquire about my beliefs. And, um, you know, again, I want to claim Christianity because I just assumed that that's what I was because I grew up going to church. Um, then they would, you know, ask me about my faith. And since my faith didn't exist, I didn't have any genuine, like, understanding of God or, or really anything um, pretty to mm-hmm. Christianity. I would, uh, you know, like a lot of people, I'll, I'll try to backpedal and rationalize and try to make it appear, you know, um, a certain kind of way. They would ask me, you know, if I read my Bible. I was like, well, I don't even really have a Bible. And no, I don't read it. And why is that even important? And so, uh, but I was, you know, I've been always been kind of a friendly kind of person, easy to get along with, and so I would be invited to the campus ministry activities, like fellowship with Christian athletes or campus crusade for Christ, and and so I would agree to go periodically, and uh, I would go, and truly I'd be a little um, weirded out by by that, you know, being used to that liturgical kind of uh, upbringing, um, so now you're. <laughs> You know, get the overhead projector and the guitars and you know, people raising hands and, you know, singing those things and, and, and teaching from the Bible and, and actually, like, trying to, you know, have some kind of education associated with that um, was very strange. And, and I was a little bit put out by it, not in any, any kind of offensive kind of way. I was just, it was just odd. And so uh, sure. I was polite and friendly and they were polite and friendly and I would stand in the back and, you know, try to get out best I could when it ended. Um, so well, although it was um, kind of where, in a, in a formal sense, God started working um, in, in the way that I was looking back, I can see in a more obvious way. I was invited to a, uh, a play put on by a church. This is my freshman year. Um, uh, on Halloween, it was one of the judgment houses. And so um, we went to one of those things. Uh, again, I agreed because why not? So I went to that and and really, I was pretty uh, unfazed. Like, I wasn't really the, the drama production um, didn't really stand out to me in any kind of way. I was just kind of going through the motions. And uh, it was really afterward uh, when somebody uh, that was there, they were remarking on um, how there was, like, a scene that had included like, kind of a hellish kind of scene. Okay. And they were remarking on how undesirable it was. And uh, how then one, one person was like, you know what, I'm just thankful that I'm going to go to heaven. And and the way they said that, they had a lot of confidence um, in, in that statement. And that struck me as odd because I was um, thinking, well, isn't it presumptuous to to tell God what he's going to decide uh, at judgment regarding us? You know, aren't we, you know, is that really our place to tell him what to do? And so that was the question that stood out to me. And I brought that to one of the uh, Christian leaders on campus. And uh, so when I posed the question, he's like, well, it's not so much that we're telling God what to do is more that he told us that if we choose to believe in him, this is what's going to happen. So it's more a matter of taking that as a word rather than, than telling him what to do. And so that made sense to me. And then I was like, well, I believe in Jesus, and therefore I'm going to go to heaven. 
Um, and, but I was, I was thinking that it just didn't resonate internally. I was like, you know, something doesn't feel right about that. And then when I would kind of like try to affirm to myself that I was, you know, going to go to heaven, um, it just wasn't believable, was incredible to my own soul, so to speak. Um, so I was troubled by it. And so I began in my very, you know, undefined prayer life, which didn't really exist, but whenever I thought of God, it was more a matter of like, okay, you know, I really am unhappy that I don't have any kind of sense of salvation. And so my life didn't change at all. Um, I didn't do anything differently. Um, I was just unsettled. And so um, through my freshman year and on through the summer and at the start of my sophomore year, uh, I was again invited to a church play. Um, this one, again, the, the theme was similar to the first one, but it was sort of like a, a play on the rapture. And um, the, uh, the suggestion was you have people coming to, uh, you know, to believe or disbelieve like in a, in a definitive sense, and then rapture happens, the implication being those that believe or rapture, those that disbelieve are left behind. And so in the course of that production, again, I wasn't really that taken by the, the drama itself. So I was just kind of lost in my own thoughts. And um, and then it was kind of, uh, I guess you would say, I call it kind of like an epiphany kind of moment for me, like where the Holy Spirit, um, you know, kind of just crystallized in my thinking, just basically brought awareness um, to the idea, not just the idea, but an embracing of the idea that, that if I want to understand salvation, I must embrace Christ wholeheartedly. Um, and in him, personal, immediate sense, I would find salvation. And so... So, again, it was kind of like a simultaneous awareness slash embracing since I kind of just received. And and then, you know, I was just uh, overwhelmed uh, with uh, that confidence, that assurance of of, of, of salvation uh, alongside a, a you know, just sense of ultimate commitment. Like, okay, this is what it means to know Jesus, and, and my life is now his. And so it was kind of a dramatic moment. Um, I'm leaving out a lot of details, but uh, just to give, again, I try to give a very small explanation to it, is that I, I lived my life as a, generally a happy kid, um, but I was always discontented in, in, like, in the depths of my heart, so to speak. And I was always, you know, seeking some level of ultimate satisfaction on, like, an existential level. And I always thought that, you know, the whole, that God should avoid that people try to fill. So I try to fill it with sports or with girls or with friends or whatever, and nothing quite right. was sufficient. And so in that same moment, you know, I experienced that, that deep soul-level satisfaction. And so it was all a very powerful moment, and I wept. And, um, you know, really uh, just at that moment, I was, you know, born again. And um, from that day forward, I was um, a new person. Wow. That's that's amazing. That is the power of God's regenerative work in our lives for sure. Uh what uh, what what has gotten you into um interested then in uh pursuing a degree at SES and then the degree at uh, uh Asheville? Well, I was already at UNC Asheville. Um I had uh, came into school not knowing what to do as like a major in a life, you know, work. And so my um, my dad was a very successful businessman, entrepreneur type person, and even though I didn't have the same passion for it that he did, uh, it just seemed like a good default kind of major. Like, hey, I like to you know, get a job and you know make a living and you know just have a good life. So I came in as a business major, not because of any desire, but out of you know out of out of default status. 
Um, so after um, getting saved early in my sophomore year, um, I, you know, I began, you know, again, I really knew, you know, you could about take my theological knowledge and put it in a symbol copy, and I really knew essentially nothing. And so I began basically consuming, you know, the scriptures and, and got heavily involved in campus ministries and, you know, just really started growing. And, and in, that, in that season, um, I was just kind of just perfectly considering about my life and, and you know, kind of where, uh, just where I saw my gifts and, you know, longings and desires and, and really saw that I was much better suited um, to to be to go into counseling than I was to be a businessman. And so, mm-hmm. even though I was very young in the faith, I was like, you know, this just kind of fits me. Um, and so I made the decision, even as a baby Christian, to switch my major to psychology. Um, and so I switched it starting my junior year. And and then you know I was actually on pace to graduate a semester early since I, since I uh, switched my major, it just pushed me back to the regular time frame. And so, uh, so I started pursuing um, psychology with an end into counseling. Um, the, uh, in terms of apologetics, um, since my eyes were now kind of open to the spiritual world, and I was very excited um, about my new faith and talking with people about it, um, I started noticing, obviously, the different, um, obviously, in, in a you know university setting, that there was a lot of people who were very either antagonistic for Christianity combined with very confident assertions in other belief systems. Uh, so I encountered, you know, atheists, I encountered New Agers, and I encountered um, the Book of Mormon, and I encountered um, an Islamically run website, um, and, you know, saying that there is, you know, hundreds of thousands of contradictions in the Bible. And so really my crisis of faith came in my early years as a baby Christian because I was really wrestling through, well, what is true, and how do I know Christianity is true, Maybe I just had an emotional experience. Um, you know, what if it's Mormonism? What if it's, you know, this New Age Jesus? What if it's, you know, Islam? You know, what if it's another thing? You know, what if it's atheism? And am I willing to follow the truth wherever it leads? And uh, and so I really went through this wrestling season. Um, and so, uh, you know, by the grace of God, in the encountering um, apologetics, encountering uh, Ravi Zacharias, his material, um, and uh, Guinness, um and some others uh, that I really came to the conclusion that Krishna was true um, because I really was doubting that for a while. And so um, this was really the challenge. Um, the questions came after my conversion uh, when I was evaluating whether I was going to remain a Christian or not. And uh, and then I came to you know greater and greater confidence um, that that was the Krishna was true. And it was uh, the Lord's providence um, that actually brought me to uh, SES um, because um, I met my wife, Misty. Of course, we were dating and then engaged. And uh, she was um, a teaching fellow at UNC Asheville. And that's a scholarship where you agree to teach in the state for four years. And so my plan okay. was to, um, my plan was to, uh, when I graduated college, was to uh, um, pursue seminary for, uh, to get a counseling degree. Well, she, you know, went off to become a teacher, and then we all would be the teacher. She'd be the teacher, I'd be the counselor, and that's what we would do. Um, but I had this, um, this, this, by now, this really strong passion for apologetics growing within me. And so we went to a, uh, a conference put on by Campus Crusade for Christ in Charlotte, um, senior year in college. And um, while there, they had a informational session for people to investigate seminaries and missions organizations and those kinds of things. 
And there's two seminaries in North Carolina that offered a counseling program. One was uh, Gordon Conwell, and the other one was um, uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And so um, Miss Judy didn't have any particular um, interest in going to any of these informational sessions. So she agreed to go to the Gordon Conwell information session. And I saw one for SCS, which I thought meant Southeastern Seminary. And so I show up, and it turns out it's Southern Evangelical Seminary. <laughs> and I'm uh-huh. with uh, Richard and Tom Howe. And they're there to to you know plug the seminary. I'm the only person in the room, and and I talk with them for for 30 minutes. They show me the the cheesy video they had 20 years ago, and you know about the seminary. And we got to talking about apologetics, and and I thought, well, I was like, and I left there 30 minutes later, like, well, that's a cool meeting, you know. I guess I'll never see those guys again. <laughs> and then um, then I get you know I graduate college in um 2000, and you know, I get married. And then she had one more year of school to finish up her student teaching before she graduated. So that year I got a job in mental health, and um, she finished up her schooling, and I started applying to seminaries. So I applied to Gordon-Conwell and got accepted. And I was planning on going there, and then uh, Misty and I were kind of talking, and I was like, you know what, that that seminary in Charlotte, you know, they do apologetics there. And, And I was just really intrigued. And so she's like, well, why don't you go ahead and apply? So I applied and got accepted. Now, of course, I've been accepted to two schools. Now, what do I do? And, and so she um, saw, you know, the passion I had. And she's like, you know what? Why don't you just go ahead and do the apologetics degree first? You know, I was like, you know what? That's, that's a good idea because I'm really, I'm still a baby Christian. I've only been saved for three years. And I need, I need a lot, of, I really need to lay a foundation upon which I can then uh, build a counseling ministry. And so, so we agreed to uh, go to Southern Evangelical Seminary. Um, so we moved to Charlotte. And she got a teaching job, and um, I, I found another mental health job and started going to school. And uh, that was a harder road because obviously the SES degree didn't translate immediately into any kind of job, and, and still in one sense it hasn't um, because I'm not doing what I did because I have the apologetics degree as such. Um, but what what I did get there was so was so foundational, was so formative in terms of the quality of the education, apologetics, theology, Bible, philosophy that that really has become the foundation for my approach to counseling. And so so I got way more in terms of content than I ever imagined, as well as even structures than I ever imagined. Um, and, and again, I think that even though it was a long way around, um, I think that the fruit of that decision has far exceeded what I ever, again, what I ever imagined. Wow. It's yeah, you know, that's why we we have you guys on on the show because it's just it's amazing to see how God has has so worked in your lives and is is uh, it's just incredible. Love to hear that. Well, let's let's get. I guess we need to move on to the topic uh, of the show, and we're going to follow an outline. Now, correct me. This is a, a talk you gave at your church. Is that correct? Yes, yeah, the talk I gave um, actually I gave it at the Apologetics Conference um, two years ago. Um, 2013, okay. the apologetics conference. Then, um, and then, uh, then when I was preparing for this year's conference, um, I uh, was you know preparing for the possibility of doing it again. And I, I updated it and revised it, and it uh, turns out that that talk wasn't necessarily. I, I ended up doing the other talk that I did do this year at the conference, um, and so but I worked it out with Life Fellowship Church to to give both talks at the church, and so I, I tailored it to my church audience. Um, and then I did I did that class, you know, um a couple months ago now. 
So that's the uh, yeah. So I sent you the, my my uh, you know my outline that I, that I spoke out of. All right, good stuff. Well, I wanted to to ask. I guess you had a couple of questions there at the bottom of the outline, and I think it's probably important to right off the bat I answer the question: um, Should Christians study psychology? Because you have or or counseling or whatever. Because you have, or even should Christians go to counseling or therapy or whatever? Because you have some in the church that would say. You know, you just, you don't, you, you just, you need the Bible, that's all. Um, you don't need to do any type of counseling, therapy, etc. Um, why should we, why should Christians study psychology or counseling or however you would, <laughs> however you would frame it? Yeah. yeah, that's a great question. That's definitely a question that's been debated within the church over the last several decades. Um and as I've just entered into it, I, I kind of have, again, I had the experiential before I had the, the, the technical. You know, because I got started with uh, working in the mental health field and got my psychology degree before I really had much of a theological framework. Um, and so having worked for more than a decade in the mental health system um, and while getting my seminary training and, and, you know, working through that, you know, the question was, well, how do these two fit together? How do I reconcile psychology and mental health with, Theology, and so um, my my approach, my convictions, and I'll have to explain that as we go along here, is that because God um, is the creator of a physical world, you know, so on the basis of, well, you know, we we argue as Christians that science is actually a legitimately Christian endeavor, you know, even though the atheists claim that that they have the the market cornered on science. But I don't know. The theological foundation for for science is stronger in in Christian theism than in in atheism, um, and so so in that same way of thinking, psychology is is a science. And so I think rightly done, psychology has um, a place that's that's valid and legitimate for 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 Christians to understand that God made the brain and made humans to to operate in, in certain. Uh, ways that, that like social psychology or obviously brain uh, the hardwiring of the brain and, and all these kinds of things that psychologists look into um, have a valid or there's a lot of it that's valid within the Christian worldview. Um, the problem okay. is is that what's that? I'm sorry, did I ask something? No, no, I just I said okay. Okay, so but part of what the training at SES allowed me to do was to begin to kind of separate the wheat from the tares in terms of what within the psychological endeavor is valid and which isn't. And and it's interesting because of the postmodern impact on society, uh, there's a class I had to take at UNCA called History and Systems. And basically it was the recognition that the, the current um, philosophical spirit of the age inevitably impacts down the trough a little bit, how people approach the question of psychology. So in the, I'll talk about how in the earlier stage when they saw man as machine, and that kind of led to behaviorists like Skinner. Then you have the whole self-actualization movement in the 60s, and you see you know, Abraham Maslow. And, and so you see these um, approaches to psychology kind of grow out of the, um, the philosophical context of the day. And as a result, though, when you're then evaluating psychological approaches, you can see where you know where you have philosophical commitments that are contrary to to Christian theism, 
And so having looking at that and looking at my actual work in the field upon what principles is the uh is the system built. And that's kind of where my uh critique of the system began. Uh, but to go back to your original question is I think that yes, psychology has a place, um, but as a subset to theology. So I think we need to major in theology, know God, know um anthropology from a from a theological framework. And then you can evaluate human nature and human design um in accordance with that. And that in that context you have um the information that psychology can give us as beneficial. But usually it works backwards where psychology is seen as the major and theology is seen as the minor at best, where you see right. theology as a subset of anthropology. Well, your belief, your view of God, your religious practices is a part of who you are, and it's your understanding, and it's your truth, and it's your belief, and, and therefore we're going to approach it anthropologically first, and then theologically second. And so, so I think they have it exactly backwards. But that is, I think from, a, from what you're asking me, we have to have major in theology, we still need a minor in psychology. Okay, good. All right, well, let's go to point one here of overview of the evaluation, and I'll just kind of turn it to you and let, let you kind of walk us through this. All right, so in terms of this, uh, so this talk is about evaluating um, the North Carolina mental health system. And the reason I limit it to North Carolina is because that's the one I've worked in, and that's the one I'm familiar with. And so I'm confident that these themes and principles expand far beyond North Carolina. I'm trying to be modest in my approach and to keep it with what, I, what I've um, directly encountered. And so my evaluation of the state system um, has uh, six aspects or six components to it. And so I look at its, its foundation, uh, its scope, um, the methodology, um, goal, spiritual realm, and the, and the emphasis. And so I can talk about each of those six aspects in terms of what the North Carolina Health System uh, emphasize on how they treat each of those items, and I have a uh, like a Christian appraisal of each one of those um, components. I'm sorry, Mike. I I, I lost that last part. I said that in each of the six components, I have um I uh, provide an analysis of what how does the, how does the state system run, and then like an evaluation from a Christian framework of of those components. Also, okay. when it comes to the when it comes to like the foundation, uh, what is the foundation for the system? Um, I have an acronym, an acronym that I used um, in, in a blog post on this, but basically that the foundation is soft, and so the S O F T. So the first um, foundation is scientism, and so scientism, um, as you would know, is that the idea that when it comes to knowledge, um, you know, math and science is all that man can, mankind can objectively know. And so, you know, a proponent of that view, which is called uh, also called logical positivism, would be like A.J. Ayer and, and Bertrand Russell. And so within the psychological system, there is a strong emphasis on how psychology is a science. And, and there's a lot of effort made to, uh, to you know, utilize the scientific um, method and to, you know, focus on testing and results in laboratory and trying to evaluate um, right in a medical fashion, like there's a strong medical slash scientific emphasis. And so, um, in fact, the billing, uh, when you get into the system, has to run off of medical diagnoses. And so if someone's diagnosed with bipolar or with a generalized anxiety disorder or uh, some other mental health diagnosis, that is a scientific endeavor and that grows out of an emphasis on the scientific reality or the validity of the scientific method within psychology. 
Now, the reason I think they go beyond mere science into scientism is that when it comes to questions of knowledge, this is the only realm that's recognized as objective. Um, any other element of truth is uh, seen as subjective, and we'll get into that when we get into the more of the postmodern elements of things. But when it comes to that which is objective and that which is um, can be known, uh, math and science is, is where it's at within uh, how the system is put together. And so there's a scientism that is uh, the first um, philosophical um, frame, so to speak, in the, in the foundation for the system. Um, okay. The second one, it would be O, which is optimism. And optimism has both secular humanistic as well as uh, New Age varieties. Uh, when it comes to the scientism element of it, you have more of that secular humanistic approach where you have people who are more medically minded, they're reason minded, uh, who are trying to evaluate um, the validity of things. Um, but then within your actual practitioners, there's a heavy um, new age component because it's, it's, just, it's just the case that the people who are actually doing the work can be very comfortable with the new age movement. So whether you talk about secular humanism or you're talking about new age, overwhelmingly is this idea of, of the greatness uh, and the possibilities of, of mankind. And so people are essentially good. Um, you know, mental illness is an obstacle that keeps them from becoming all that they could be. The purpose of our services is to help them overcome the mental illness so they can self-actualize. Um, and so people are seen as essentially good and, and any struggles or hardships they have is really because of external sources. People had bad things happen to them, tragedies, difficulties, et cetera, et cetera. And that is, you know, the basis for um, the challenges they have. And so this is optimism about what man is as well as what man can become. And that is pervasive in the literature and the trainings. And it's just the, the mentality um, that's just very present within the system. And so it's meant to be a very optimistic approach to humanity. Um, thirdly, is uh, the F would be functionalism or, or pragmatism, and that things are seen in terms of its um, immediate uh, benefit. There's a heavy emphasis on doing what works, um, trying to, well, whether it be interventions that work, finding supports that work, whether it be you know, therapeutic strategies that work. We want to move from point A to point B, and whatever lever I can pull to make that happen, let's do that. And so there's a heavy emphasis on, on being um, practical or functional. Um, consistent with a scientific approach, they, what's called evidence-based practices. So how do we know that what we're doing works to help people get better? And if you don't have that evidence, then it's not, not something that we should be doing. So um, it's, it's just, again, it's very prominent in terms of focusing on, well, if it doesn't work, don't do it. If it does work, do it. And so uh, since you don't have like, you know, you an essential moral compass around what's good or bad, like, again, they're intentionally try to be value-free, i.e. scientific, then, you know, there's no real uh, moral considerations. It's more a matter of people's personal values as well as, you know, with that which is legal or illegal. And so that leads us to postmodernism, which is, uh, or the T okay. is truth as relative. Outside of the medical considerations, um, which is seen as scientific, when it comes to, again, that which is true, or, you know, with us people's beliefs, when it comes to what's important and good in life, well, that's for each person to decide for themselves. And so there's an emphasis on whether it be in a cultural framework or an individual framework or both. It's the idea that we can't know, you know, goodness and truth in God 
you know, as God or goodness or true, but it's all about my experience, my beliefs, my personal imposition of my subjective experience um, onto the framework. And so this postmodern self-determination um, is, is, again, strongly present within the system. So I have the foundation is SOFT, scientism, optimism, functional, and truth as relative. Okay. Questions or comments on that? No, no. I think you explained that pretty well. I'm following along here in the outline. I think that's. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think I, I pretty much get that. Yeah, I, I, you definitely see the new age humanism um, <laughs> creeping in. You see this all all the time. So, I like how you uh, able to bring that out there. Yeah, it's definitely, uh, it's not even, I would say, even beyond creeping, it's definitely, I would say, loud and proud celebrated. And so it is something that people are quite uh, vocal about. Um, So it's, uh, maybe when it comes to particular New Age practices, that's a little bit more um, quiet. Right. Um, But as far as the optimism and and just uh, the humanism is is definitely uh, fairly celebrated. All right. Good stuff. I'll let you move to so, your next next point here. Yeah. So, next thing here would be um, uh, the scope. Um, scope basically means the range, a range of what's considered. And so, the uh, mental health system operates on a medical model. Um, the medical model is is intuitive enough um, because uh, when I I'll give, I'll give an example that shows how intuitive it is. So, let's say I fall down and I hurt my arm, and my arm is really really bothering me. You know, so I'm like okay. I'm like I'm uncomfortable and I'm uneasy. So my wife says, "You know what, Mike? Go, go to the doctor. Right? The doctor could figure out what's wrong." So I go to the doctor, right. and the doctor, you know, looks at my arm. He you know pulls it, pokes it, asks me questions. Does it hurt when I touch here? Does it hurt when I do this? And 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 through this process, he's trying to assess what's wrong with my arm. So the testing is, is an evaluative tool for the sake of assessment. So he can diagnose that which is wrong with my arm. Is it sprain? Is it a a bruise? Is it a, a break, a fracture? You know, what's going on in my arm? Do I have a tumor? I mean, let's just try to figure that out. So through all the testing, one of the assessment tests, they come to a diagnosis. And the diagnosis gave Mike, you got a broken arm. Okay, well, I got a broken arm. So now we're going to figure out what to do about it, which is treatment. So Mike, you need a cast. We're going to set the break. We're going to put in the cast. You need to wait eight weeks. After eight weeks, you take the cast off, which is a soft cast. You need to go easy. You might need some physical therapy. But, hey, after, you know, 10 to 12 weeks, your arm will be good as a dance. And so my thanks off, and he charges me, you know, an exorbitant amount of money. And um, I go home, and I follow what he told me to do. And so if I do what he told me to do, after 10 to 12 weeks, my arm should be back up and running again. And so, so the medical model has three parts. is the assessment phase, which is uh, trying to assess what's wrong medically. Then you, once you have assessed it, then you diagnose it, you give it a name, and based on the assessment, the diagnosis, then you know what to do about it because you treat a break different than you treat a sprain. You might treat a sprain differently right. than you treat a tumor. So you have right. to know what it is so you know what to do about it. So, again, so this is the medical model, and so far as it goes, there's no real um, problem with that. I mean, I don't have an issue with evaluating mm-hmm. you know, medically or clinically the elements of um, when it comes to mental health. So let's say someone has depression you know, or the symptoms of depression, they go and talk to the doctor, doctor conducts an assessment, tries to figure out, you know, is this this person depressed or not? 
And if it's someone diagnosed with depression, they're going to prescribe a treatment, you know, therapy or medication or some combination of activities meant to alleviate the depression. So, so that's how the mental health system is built on the medical model, assessment, diagnosis, and treatment. Now, the uh, my my evaluation though is is to recognize that the scope I regard is, as both too limited as well as uh, flawed in its orientation. Because when it comes to depression, one of some of the things considered around depression would be a sense of hopelessness as well as a sense of helplessness. Um, and so even from those two aspects, when it comes to the question of hope, I mean, does the Bible have anything to say about hope? I'm inclined to think that it does. Uh, when <laughs> Does the Bible say anything about what it means to be helpless? You know, I think that it does. And what the Bible prescribes in terms of how to handle feelings of hopelessness and how to handle feelings of helplessness um, is, is very particular because we're not supposed to put our hope in certain things. We are supposed to put our hope in Christ. When it comes to right. hopelessness, well, in a sense, I am helpless. You know, I, I do need Christ. I do need the power of the Holy Spirit. And so <clears throat> now when we get to this part of it, you know, people might be upset or begin to be upset because they might think I'm being overly simplistic. And so that's where we have to have, you know, a well-developed, evaluated, you know, theology to consider these things. So when it comes to the question of depression, if there is a clinical depression, which means that there's going to be certain things I'll be experiencing that follow a certain course, it's not so simple as like, well, today I'm going to choose to hope in Christ, therefore my depression lifts. It's, it's really the process of learning how to choose to hope in Christ in the context of recognizing the other physiological aspects of my depression, because there could be something going on in terms of my life history or in terms of my life stresses. So you have to consider every element of the of the picture so you can account for each one and that so that over time we grow into a healthier place. And it still doesn't even guarantee that the depression stuff will be lifted. But the important part is, I would say from a Christian framework, is what is God's purposes in all of this? I mean, is there a place for... You know, a kind of depression, I think, in Scripture. And I would, I would say that, that there is a place for that. When you, we're allowed to bring our hurting hearts to God. And, and the fact that I have a hurting heart isn't by itself wrong or sinful. And so uh, it's more a matter of what I do with it. So I think that we have to put the concept of, concept of depression in the, within the larger Christian framework. And so not only are you trying to address each detail you know, sufficiently within the framework of Scripture, but also having a, a redemptive orientation, which is the the lower city the orientation squad. Because on the medical model, success or lack of success depends upon is the, the symptoms of depression managed. Now, I think we need to account for those, but in, from a Christian standpoint, you know, the question is, am I growing in the grace of God? Now, I think as I grow in the right. grace of God, that should have impact on my depression, but that's still the larger question. So God is redeeming me, he's sanctifying me, he's transforming me through the suffering, through the hardship. Then from a Christian standpoint, I regard that as even a greater success than the depression lifting. Right. And so I do right. want the depression to lift. Like I, I pray for that. I support people in that process. But even more important is, is, is the redemptive work that God is doing. So I think that the scope needs to be grander than just the medical piece as well as the orientation onto the alleviation of it. Can I, can I ask you a question with that as well, sure. Mike? Um, a lot of people will, uh, you know, generally ask whether or not Christians should take um, antidepressants or if they should see, uh, for example, therapists, you know, those who are going through, uh, you know, depressed seasons of their life. 
And uh, some would say no. Some would say you just you need to trust in God fully. Um, you need to be in the scriptures, memorize scriptures. Uh, but the Christian shouldn't be dependent upon drugs or or uh, be going to see um, therapists. And some would even say, you know, you should never even go to a non-Christian therapist. What are some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a great question. Several good questions there. So when it comes to um, uh, medication, um, or, or even like the proposed suggestion that all I need to do is, is you know, memorize more Bible. Now, I'm also memorizing the Bible, but is memorizing the Bible the theological solution to depression? Like, I don't see that that is a a one-to-one relation there. Um, so I think we have to get we get more into the weeds as far as what's going on with the particular in case of depression. How do we engage uh, faithfully in terms of how the Lord would, you know, want me to? You know, how do I honor Him and how I engage with this? Now, and that's where that's going to involve both my physical body, my, my thoughts, um, how I deal with my emotions, how I handle my relationships. So there's a lot of different elements um, to that question. So when it comes to the physiological side of things, um, I don't have a problem with people utilizing a medication to address the physiological, just like I wouldn't have a problem that has, if someone has a, you know, some kind of virus that an antibiotic will take care of. Does, I, does, does the fact that I take an antibiotic mean I don't trust God? I don't see that that follows at all. I think that as I trust God and I myself to him, I in, engage faithfully in the ways that my body requires. And so I can trust God and eat food. Well, God's going to sustain me. Well, yeah, God sustains me, but he sustains me through the mechanism of eating food. You know, and so mm-hmm. if, if there is a, a biological element that a medication would help alleviate, I, I think that it's um, rightful to use the providential means that God provides to to account for that. What I do caution against, though, if people again are looking for a merely outcome of I just want to feel better, well, I don't think God calls us merely to feel better. I think God wants us to bring our whole selves to Him, to bring the cries of our hearts to Him, to bring our our, our baggage and our and our issues and our challenges to Him, and letting Him work in us and through us. And, and so while I think there is a role for, like, an antidepressant, I don't think that's the end-all and be-all of the process. Now, when it comes to the therapy question, because then, well, if I, okay, well, I can deal with the physiological part through the medication. When I have to go deal with my baggage, I'll go see a therapist then. Well, what do I do then? Now, technically speaking, I think that people could um, go to a, a, again, a secular therapist and find um, benefit in terms of their particular challenge because I think God has gifted some secular therapists with some very good skills to help them with those particular challenges. But I think the whether well, that puts the responsibility although on the person to do their own evaluation slash integration as far as how do those particular therapeutic interventions interconnect with their belief system in a way that again honors God and, and helps them to, to grow through the process. So I think that can happen I just don't think it tends to happen because because therapists are operating off of this other framework, that's how they come. And even though they try very hard to accommodate the beliefs and the you know values of the client, um, I, I we would both I think that a non-Christian would have a hard time really appreciating the finer theological nuances that we encounter as as believers. And so I think that there's a an inherent challenge that is theoretically overcome, but I think in practice it would be pretty rare. And so I would suggest that the ideal person would be a, a, a strong Christian who has, you know, 
a strong handle on, on theology as well as, again, majoring that theology, minoring in psychology. And I, I think it would be great for, for Christians to be really skilled in the therapeutic, you know, uh, interventions and then awarenesses of those issues, but to have them framed uh, within not only the theological framework of, of, you know, doing right and not doing wrong, but I would say within the, the framework of, of design and redemption, which means that, again, the purpose of engaging well in the context of depression isn't merely to alleviate the depression, as important as that is, but to experience redemption in the midst of it. And if I can have both, so to speak, if I can be redeemed, that they are redeemed by also managing my thoughts and feelings and, and my mood in a better way, and that's, um, I think that's uh, that's consistent with redemption. We should ex- we should get healthier as we get holier. And so I really see those right. two sides of the same coin. Yeah. So okay. So basically, you you you'd say you know Christians uh, just like if you have a medical issue, you need to take medicine to get over a cold or flu or whatever. Uh, biologically, there are issues that can happen in the brain where not uh, producing enough of, uh, I guess, the proper chemicals, and it's okay to uh, to take medicine or, or stuff for that. Uh, but ultimately, our goal is not just feeling better, but being sanctified and, and drawn closer to Christ. Is that accurate? Yeah, that'd be a good summary. So, yeah, I think we have to address the, the immediate challenge, but in the context of the larger redemptive work. And I think that'd be true, again, even with the medical issues. Like, I, I, uh, I tore a ligament in my ankle last summer. And so when I was in the pain that was associated with that, I was, of course, wanting my ankle to get better. Um, I love to play basketball, and I want my ankle to get better so I can play basketball again. Um, but in the context of that, I'm looking, okay, God, how can you use this hardship, which I don't desire at all, but I do desire you to use it in my life. And so how can sure. I grow through the torn ligament in my ankle? And so I think it's the same way when I'm dealing with any kind of trauma or any kind of uh, hardship or any kind of suffering, any kind of mental illness, is yes, let's deal with the mental illness. But A, the mental illness tends to deal with topics that are specific to God's role in our lives, you know, whether it be fear, anxiety, hope, those kinds of things. We need to look to God, but also we need to see God's larger work in the midst of dealing with a smaller picture issue. And I think that's why the scope as, as the medical model, while being good so far as it goes, is, is ultimately too limited. The scope is too narrow and, and, the, and the orientation is flawed. All right, folks. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break here for a few minutes. Uh, Mike, is it okay if we open up the phone and take callers? That's what you want to do. We can do that. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll, we'll continue to work through your talk and um, if, if we may not have anyone call in, but uh, that option is there if people want to call in. The number to call is 760-542-3907, 760-542-3907. We're talking about the Bible and mental health. If you have questions, um, again, you don't have to agree with us to call. Uh, we would enjoy listening to your, your thoughts on this. and. Uh, Continue with us, and we will be back after this commercial break. What is something that computers and humans have in common, which constantly needs upgrading in computers, but not in humans? The answer is software. You may not have realized you have software, but inside the nucleus of each of your cells, a program is written in the form of 3 billion DNA letters. Intelligent programmers write computer software, but what about living things? 
Evolutionists tell us that the information in the first living cell just appeared by itself with no intelligent input required. But is that possible? The answer is a resounding no. Even one of Australia's best-known scientists, Paul Davies, conceded that there is no known law of physics able to create information from nothing. And perhaps that's why, in a New Scientist article, he lamented, how did stupid atoms spontaneously write their own software? Nobody knows. To find out more from Creation Ministries International, visit our website, creation.com. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. Apologist. We interview the world's leading apologists to provide credible answers to curious questions. It's no secret that philosophy has been given a bad rap by some in Christian circles. Why do you think that's the case? Well, bad philosophy needs a bad rap. Uh, And a lot of Christians, that's all they know. Colossians 2.8 says, beware of philosophy. Actually, there's a definite article of the in Greek. It's talking about particular bad philosophy was kind of incipient Gnosticism that existed there. Christians have nothing to fear from a good philosophy. In fact, we need good philosophy to answer the bad philosophy, as C.S. Lewis said. So I think Christians need to get into philosophy because God commanded it, because uh, the world uh, demands it, and because the results confirm it. Uh, I can tell you any number of people who have been trained in philosophy and apologetics who have had great ministries and winning people to Christ who would not otherwise have been won to Christ. I have a whole file full of people who said, I was an agnostic, I was an atheist, I read your book, uh, I appreciated the reasoning that was in it, and I've come to know uh, Christ, and I want to thank you for uh, writing that book. So the uh, proof of the pudding is in the uh, eating. It has good results, uh, good philosophy, has good results. You can't know error without studying truth, but you can't answer error without studying philosophy because you wouldn't go to a doctor who didn't study sickness. If you went to a doctor who said, what's wrong with that? He said, I got a pain in my apostat near my zorch or wherever you get pains. And he said, uh, what would you like to know about health? He said, look, doctor, I'm, I'm dying. I got a pain. I don't want to know about health. I want to know, can you cure this sickness I've got? So you can know the truth, but if you don't know error, you don't know how to apply the truth to the error and when the people were in error.
right, folks, welcome back to Theology Matters with the Blues. Uh, we are taking your phone calls at 760-542-3907, and we are looking at the topic of Bible and mental health. So if you have any questions regarding this, I think probably probably everybody has someone in their family or they know someone uh, who suffers with either depression or uh, just some some type of mental illness. I think we've all been affected by that, whether it's, whether it's ourselves, whether it's friends or family members. Uh, so we would love to hear from you as uh, we kind of dive into this important topic. So, Mike, uh, you there, buddy? I still am. All right. I want to go ahead and uh, turn it back over to you as you're walking us through this talk that you did at the National Apologetics Conference, uh, what did you say, 2013? Yeah, 2013 is when I spoke on this. Um, this again, I gave a variety of this talk, and it's not identical to it, but it's 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 close to it. Wonderful. So, so yeah. I'll kind of turn that over to you and let you kind of continue walking us through. We've got about uh, 30 minutes or so left, so feel free to uh, keep going through this. Sure. Well, the next uh, component that I consider is uh, the method. You know, what is the method of the mental health system? It's like having identified the diagnosis, uh, now there needs to be uh, a treatment. And then what's the treatment approach? And so um, within the mental health system, like the community mental health system, they operate what's called called the person-centered plan, which is their way of saying treatment plan. And I'll get into the person-centered part of it in a little bit. But for right now, um, that there's a treatment plan. And so... Um, it, it's built on um, the strengths of the consumer. It was just the, that's how they identify the person in the receiving services as a consumer. And so they do what's called strengths-based. And so they're always trying to find what are the good things about this person upon which we can ascend uh, or they can ascend into the greater heights of that self-actualization in overcoming their mental illness. Um, they will utilize uh, natural supports, which is like family, friends, um, and community resources, such as like church or clubs or schools. Just want to find that which is already in the community to help people uh, overcome things. And then there's also professional supports, which would be your uh, therapist or psychiatrist. Um, and also there's other even more enhanced services. And so um, so the methodology is at the structural level is, is the strengths, is the natural supports, is the professional supports. Um, but the, the the goal in all of that, again, it's helping um, meet people move towards their goal, which I'll get to next. But the methodology is basically how do I help a person manage their symptoms? And so if it's a system, a, a symptom diagnosis treatment approach, we want to deal with the things that are hindering people from, you know, achieving whatever their goals are. So a person is having a hard time um, uh, with their job because of their mental illness and say they have too much anxiety, they can't do their job well, well, let's, let's alleviate the anxiety. Let's teach them some coping skills so they can manage the anxiety so they can do their job. So so the methodology is very, uh, it seems to be a clinical thing because it, it's, it's tied to symptoms. Um, it's meant to be it's measured pragmatically with how effective is this particular intervention. But that is the emphasis, is, is how are the symptoms a barrier to the goals? And, and therefore, that's that's where the emphasis and the time is spent working on that. Um, and so, again, I'm kind of similar to the medical model. Um, that emphasis, again, it's fine so far as it goes. But I think the larger framework for Christians is that, you know, how do we 
uh, again, grow through difficulty. So we talked about in terms of the previous content of, um, you know, the scope, you know, the goal is to grow through this. This would also be, okay, well, how, how can I grow through this? And so I think that's where the role of the, of the biblical counselor or even the discipler in this person's life is to help them. Okay, well, as you're dealing with this, yes, when it comes to anxiety, there is importance in learning how to, you know, cope with the anxiety. Because also how do I, you know, approach um, the question of anxiety from a, from, a, from a biblical framework? And so we're going to talk in terms of theology. We're going to talk in terms of um growing in our understanding as well as growing in our living out of that which we understand. So because of the broader scope and, and, and the different orientation, therefore the methodology is going to reflect that. And so the conversations all have include the particular practical struggles they face. But then I'm also talking about those same things within, within this larger theological framework. Is there a theological misunderstanding? Is there a... Um, we have this huge issue, as you would notice of people who understand being saved by faith but now are trying to be sanctified by the flesh. And so oftentimes people will struggle because they're trying to achieve Christian maturity through their own self-effort. And so this, this understanding of, like, well, how do we depend upon the Holy Spirit to, to be the mechanism, the, the being who gives us the ability to live out this Christian life? Because people are having a hard time trusting God in situations, then he's the one who they can learn how to rely upon to to give them the ability to live that which he's called them to. So there's a lot of teaching. There's a lot of um, uh, discussion as far as helping people to develop that theological framework as well as then to uh, develop a working theology around the particular challenges and how those connect to everything else. Because even with the anxiety, with the job situation, perhaps the person's feeling some anxiety because um, they have fear around uh, eventually being laid off. Well, Right. From a, a Christian standpoint, okay, well, on the one hand, um, how can you put yourself in the best position not to be laid off in a way that honors Christ? Because you could start cutting some corners, you know, but does that honor Christ? That might be effective if we're going to be functional about it, but how do we honor Christ in that? So we want to think biblically around a person's competencies. Um, there's also the question of um, how do we uh, learn to trust God even if you are laid off. Like, if you do get that layoff, you know, right. how do we trust God in the midst of difficulty? And then thirdly, and I would say even most importantly, is it possible that the job is too important? You know, maybe you've elevated your job to the place of idol. And really what you need to do is, is choose to worship God, and therefore the job isn't so important. And since the job isn't so important, now it's it's brought down to regular size, and therefore it's not so anxiety-inducing. So, there's, so you have to consider it from all three vantage points, and and that's where I think when you're really dealing with symptoms, you just want to help the person to stop being anxious by giving them coping skills. So yeah, coping skills are great, but these other things are important and also even more important in, in these conversations. So so the methodology um, would be different as well. Okay, um, good stuff. Yes, so the next part is the goal. And the goal for all of this um, from the medical standpoint is obviously to uh, uh, manage, to successfully manage the symptoms so the person can uh, go on and achieve their personal desires. And that's where in the person-centered plan, there's a question like, what are your long-term you know, goals? And, and so this idea of um, how can I, as an individual clinician, from the mental health standpoint, is to how do I help the person move from point A to point B as a person? 
And I even had this uh, this example given in a training I was in, showing the attempt was to show that, yeah, as clinicians, we can't impose our values on our clients. And so the person gave the example of a, of a 16-year-old male. So if you're working with a 16-year-old male and his mental illness uh, contributes to him having poor hygiene, but he's also, you know, got the hormones going and he wants to find a girlfriend and have sex with her, um, then our job as a clinician is not to judge his goal, but to um, support him in overcoming his mental illness to gain better hygiene so that he can find the girl and have sex with her. And so that is our job, is to, to suspend our values to, to help him achieve his personally identified goal. Wow. And so so the goal is, is, is humanistic, because whatever the client wants, let's do that. And and that mm. becomes the emphasis. Now, so when it comes say, to those kinds of – go ahead. Just, just, yeah, just a quick question. So sure. I'm just thinking, you know, if they, if they see studies, for example, that would show um, – you know, objectively, in the long run, premarital sex hurts uh, young teens because of, of whatever reasons. Um, would they ever, um, you know, not encourage this, the, the, the person to do what's going to give them the quickest, you know, gratification at the moment, but not down the road? I mean, do they do, they well, do that at all? Do they look kind of down the yeah, road and that's... see, well, this eventually it's going to hurt them, it's not going to help them, though it may, may, might make them happy, you know, immediately, but not down the road. I think that most clinicians, when it comes to these kinds of issues, find ways to uh, try to talk some sense into people, whatever their goals might be. And I think because mm-hmm. of society and I think in common grace, like this isn't a common kind of thing where people set out illicit goals. Um, but theoretically, there's nothing keeping that from happening. Um, you know, right, the, right. the clinician um, will, again, try to talk some sense to try to give, you know, have you thought about this, have you thought about that? But at the end of the day, you know, their job is to support the client and what they decide to do. Now, because of how the law works, the client, the clinician has a responsibility to, that the law preempts the, the client's desires. So if it comes to something illegal, then right, they right. do have responsibility to contact authorities or whatever. But when it comes to within the confines of the law, then, you know, I'm just going to, you know, inform consent. I'm going to tell them the risks, pros and cons, that, hey, you go do what you want to do. And so that is um, yeah, so, that's how that's approached. So, so let, let me ask you this. So say someone, a man comes in, says he's uh, fantasizing about, uh, you know, a 13-year-old little girl or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. He's not going to act on it, et cetera, but it's just something that he, you know, it brings him, uh, you know, happiness or whatever. Would they, is there anywhere where they're going to draw like a moral line and say, um, you know, that's morally wrong or, or would they just affirm it as long as they don't act on it or, or what would they, just, just curious. Well, I think the individual clinician would, would vary um, on the approach. I think when it comes to that case, um, because it would be illegal, um, it'd be statutory rape for I, mean, I think in probably every state for a man to you know pursue a 13 year old for sex. Um, so I think that would again in that case that would trump. Um, when it comes to it, maybe the man only wants to fantasize. Um, yeah. I think again most I think clinicians would. Uh, again, I think there is an element of common grace where people recognize that you know that's not the best. Um, but again, I think if society 
moved to such a place that that was not seen so much in a negative light, that the therapist right. would be very comfortable with, with supporting him in that. And so I guess we could conceive that not too long into the future that could be the case. You know, but if things okay. can persist the way they have been. Um, but because, uh, again, when it, that's what's seen as interesting, we haven't gotten to the postmodern part yet, but the um, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, um, which is the DSM, which is the Diagnostic Guidebook um, for Mental Health, is that it, they talk about how they are, are clinically, uh, are culturally sensitive, which means that as culture changes, then medical diagnoses change. And so okay. that's where even in the scientific approach, is they still, in a sense, take a back seat to the postmodern approach. So if it, got, if it was culturally approved for adult men to sleep with 10-year-old girls, well, let's say let's say it was you know Muhammad, you know 600 AD, then they well that's your culture and and there's no societal prohibition against it, then go for it. Okay, well, that's good. That that answers my question. So yeah, so the goal is is a uh, it's humanistic and therefore whatever whatever the client wants, so long as it's not illegal, or I guess I guess and even there's still some debate even amongst clinicians about um, if something is, is just straight out of bounds in terms of what a, a clinician feels comfortable supporting and whether or not it's even ethically permissible for them to recuse themselves from the situation. Um, like we had a situation uh, where there was a client that was not my client, thankfully, that was a different client that was that was pregnant considering abortion. And, and so, again, the, the supervisor was basically saying, well, we're not going <laughs> to we're not gonna touch that with a 10 pole. And so... Um, just if they want to do that, that's up to them, but we're going to just support them personally with whatever they decide. Um, so uh, that's um, that's how that's approached. Okay, good deal. So, so those are goals. Um, the emphasis is the next part, um, which is person-centered. And in North Carolina and other states, in North Carolina for sure, um, person-centered is, is, is a buzzword. It's a, it's a really emphasized phrase. It's an emphasized framework. And so um, as part of the required training to be uh, you know, like a mental health provider in the community, um, uh, it was called CABA within the state, um, you have to do uh, person-centered thinking and person-centered planning. It's, it's a tra- series of trainings. And how to think about people at the center. Um, and that's why the plan, the treatment plan, is called a person-centered plan. So how do we put the person at the center? The, what are their beliefs? What are their preferences? What are their desires? What are their goals? But what what is you know how do we structure all our services around the person, and so that is um, overwhelmingly the emphasis. And so uh, I have a quote um, from uh, the THH website that says, "What is person-centered planning and thinking?" I'll just read this. It says, "The person-centered planning and thinking process is a core component of quality service delivery." is a process-oriented approach for empowering people and focuses on the strengths and interests of individuals as well as their needs. Ultimately, it puts people in charge of defining the direction of their lives, not on the systems that may or may not be available to them. This leads to greater inclusion of valued members of both community and society. And uh, there's more after that, but that's just that paragraph, again, shows from the Department of Health and Human Services in North Carolina that person-centered planning and thinking, putting people at the center, is the approach that they take. Okay, and so, so as we can, as 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 Christian believers, it's very easy to see, you know, the the concern there, because man isn't made to be the center of the universe. Um, God is. God is, you know, the most important being, and our lives should be Christ centered. 
and, and, and it's his strength on our behalf that's the basis for our overcoming. And so, so obviously man is important. We're made in the image of God, and God obviously sent his son to die for us. So we're, clearly we're important, um, but uh, we're not supposed to be living our lives with ourselves at the center. And there's an irony that um, when it comes to, you know, obviously we're, we're facing greater and greater narcissism in our society, and narcissism is still seen as a mental illness, but narcissism is also also putting yourself at the center. And so there's a, a contrast between a person-centered approach, but at the same time considering a mentally ill and people put themselves at the center. But nonetheless, um, person-centered is the emphasis, and our responsibility as Christians, of course, is to put Christ at the center of everything that we do. So that is the... Uh, the emphasis part. Okay. And uh, the last item is the uh, spiritual realm. Okay. And the spiritual realm is considered from a humanistic framework. So because of, I think there's a heavy, you know, new age contingent working within the field, um, still within this um, person-centered approach, you're going to see uh, spirituality understood in an, in an anthropic sense. So earlier when I was talking about the, you guys get the question about the theology and psychology. You know, in this sense, the anthropology is the big circle, and theology is the little circle inside the big circle. You know, so theology and, and beliefs is a subset of people and, and who they are and what they do, as opposed to God being the creator. He's the big circle, and we're the created you know, small circle, so to speak, that, that grows out of him. Like, you know, he's independent of us in terms of his being. So the um, in light of this, so they are, A, seeing spiritual spirituality from a humanistic standpoint. Uh, secondly, again, it's seen from a pragmatic. Um, I use this example, even though I'm not sure very many people have seen the movie uh, The Mummy from like 20 years ago. But in the movie The Mummy, which had Brandon Fraser in it, there is a scene where the the villain slash weasel guy um, he uh, he encountered um, the mummy, which is like this, this you know super normal being, and and so when the mummy's kind of bearing down on him, he holds up his cross. He's like in Jesus' name, you know, back off, and then the mummy is unfazed and continues to bear down on him. So they pulled out the the Muslim crescent, you know, in the name of you know Allah. And nothing works. And so he pulled out the next one. So basically, you know, he's just, he's not committed to any belief system. He's just using whatever's going to work for him. And so that's how, again, the mental health system approaches. Like, if you want to pray to Jesus, and you pray to Jesus. If you want to chant to, you know, the goddess, mother of earth, you know, you chant to that person. If you want to, you know, not pray at all, that's up to you. So the if, if it works for you, great. Um, if it doesn't work for you, great. Like, there's no uh, discernment within um you know, spiritual things. Um, But then even within that framework, uh, you still have, again, an implicit uh, New Age um, presence. So even though it's not formally taught, I'm I'm aware of therapists who who use tarot cards in their therapy. Um, You know, you have uh, Eastern meditation, Tai Chi, you know, um, and even you're actually starting to see some programs or classes show up at schools. There's actually parapsychology, which is like the, um, you know, occultic approach to, well, the New Age approach to psychology um, at schools in Georgia, Virginia, California, New Jersey. So we're starting to have schools that either have classes or programs devoted to the, the you know, combination of psychology and the New Age movement. So um, so you will have wow. um, these things done. And we know about it happening in education. Well, it's also happening very powerfully in psychology and mental health. And because it's framed... Um, you know, so, you know, for whatever reason, it's not considered, quote-unquote, religion. 
Um, and therefore, it's uh, it's allowable. He gets a pass. Mm. So uh, that's more in practice than in theory, but it, it's there nonetheless. Wow. So uh, so the spiritual one is approaching in in, in this larger scale humanistic kind of way. And of course, as Christians, sure. you know we know that God is God. You know, Jesus is Lord, and the Triune God is, you know, from whom we find our being. And and not only that, but there is a there is a demonic realm that seeks our destruction. And so we have to account um, for God and for the demonic as part of our lives as Christians. And and I That's think right. that we have to account for that even in accordance with uh, with mental illness. Um, I'm not going to say that a demon, you know, it's a depression demon that impacts <coughs> people. I think that's simplistic. Right. Um, but right. I think that the enemy will use whatever tools at his disposal to to seek to, um, you know, oppress um, believers in whatever way he can. So, um, but there's no accounting for that at all within the mental health system, and there's just no conception for it unless a particular person brings that to the table to their therapist and requests it. And even then, the therapist has to try to operate within the client's framework. And, for, you know, and how can a non-Christian therapist possibly engage in spiritual warfare? It's just impossible for that to happen. So, right. so the spiritual law from a Christian vantage point is, uh, is is markedly different than the spiritual realm from the mental health system standpoint. Take a, take a couple minutes here, uh, Mike, and wrap us up as we come to another end of the episode. Any closing thoughts or conclusion that you can offer for us? Um, sure. I mean, I actually have I have a couple of examples. I'll, I'll just use one of them um, because I think it really spells uh, out the differences between these two approaches. And so um, it comes out of uh, Luke chapter 15. Everyone knows the story of the prodigal son. So we know the story of the prodigal son where he goes to his dad and says, you know, give me my inheritance. The father obliges and he takes, you know, his inheritance and goes off to a foreign land and wastes his money on women and wine, gets broke, and then you know, gets hired by a uh, heathen, and his job is to feed pigs. And while he's feeding the pigs, he's envying the pigs. And he's like, you know what, maybe I should go back home. But then let's imagine that instead he decides to go to a counselor. And so from this vantage point of the medical model, from this, this philosophical foundation, from, from a pragmatic, pragmatic approach, person-centered, you know, what would – a therapist tells the prodigal son. We probably need to tell him he needs to get some job skills. Yeah, that's the problem here. You need to get some job skills so you can make a living and not be hungry and eating pigs. And so he needs to work on his own strengths. He's got a strong will. You know, he's, he's you know, able to say hard things to people. So he needs to work on his job skills and, and build on a strong will to go and, and make a better better way for himself. And so obviously, as we know, as believers, um, the, what the prodigal son needed to do was to go home to his father. And, right. and that's what he does, and, and that's the power of that story, that the father receives the son even in his brokenness and his rebellion and his sin and his, you know, brokenness. And, and you have redemption, and you have, uh, you know, he was dead, now he's alive. So so the Christian approach, understanding theology and psychology as a minor, yeah, sure, maybe the prodigal son needs some job skills, but what he really needs is reconciliation with the father. And so I think for us to be able to bring this larger theological framework, a biblical motif, so to speak, of how do we engage with people and participate in God's redemptive work, um, which he's doing in his people. And so he, if the person's a believer and they're on the redemptive road, then my role as a, as a disciple maker, as a Christian, you know, that precedes my role as counselor. So I need to be a counselor disciple maker. 
and how do I participate in God's redemptive work in people's lives? And so I think that's what God calls us to do. That's what I'm committed to doing. And I pray that God continues to uh, work um, his purposes in, in the life, lives of, of people he brings into my path and hopefully to everyone that's out there listening, God's working his redemptive path, purposes in their lives as well. Amen. Amen, Mike. I appreciate you coming on. And I think you've gained some valuable insights. And uh look forward to having you on in the future. Oh, well, thank you so much, Devin. I appreciate the, the opportunity. And uh appreciate you and your devotion to Christ and, of course, you and your wife also. So I really appreciate you guys. Well, not a problem. We uh, love you, love your family, and uh, look forward to having you on again soon. That sounds good. Thanks, Devin. God bless. All right, folks, join us again next week. Uh, I think we're going to be playing a rebroadcast of a show we did with Rob Bowman right around this time last year uh, on the Doctrine of the Trinity. So it will be a great show. So have a great week, and God bless.